Thank you for being here today. I want to introduce our speaker. Uh, you've heard him before. He's been here about maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, Shane Wood uh, from Ozark Christian College. He teaches there these last seven years uh, as a professor. He teaches a lot of our kids who go there. And uh, a couple of the classes that he teaches, uh, he teaches the book of Acts, which, by the way, he's jumping into our Acts series today, going to continue there, the tail end of chapter 2. So I'm excited to hear Shane today. He teaches the book of Revelation as well. In fact, he told me uh, at this time in his uh, life, he's writing three books all at one time. And I don't know how a fellow can write three books all at one time, but two of those books are on the books on the book of Revelation. And uh, so maybe as he finishes those books, we can uh, we can buy those books and learn from him uh, from his writing. He has his son Zion here today, who's a seventh grader. I noticed Shane as you were standing next to each other. He's about to outgrow you. <laughs> but uh, would you welcome Shane Wood, please? Well, thank you for that, and thank you for having us this morning. It's good to be back in Fort Scott. I always forget, actually, how close Fort Scott is to Joplin. Whenever I drive, I'm like, well, that's not that bad. But for some reason, I feel like you guys are three, four hours away. It's only an hour. Barely that. Not too bad at all. Uh, The question I want to begin with this morning, though, is this. How is this possible? That's the question I want us to ask this morning. Really, it'll be the question that we'll ask in both sermons. How is this possible? That's the question I asked myself whenever I read Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47, but especially the last half of verse 47. Verse 47 ends this way. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily Those who were being saved. And and I read that verse and I asked this question. How is this possible? How is it possible to be a church that is so overwhelmed with the love of Jesus that the Spirit is moving through so passionately that God is adding to their number daily? It's not as if it is impossible. I mean, yes, we definitely have the example here in Acts chapter 2. But if any of you know the last 15 years what's been happening in the underground church of China, you know this is possible. There were estimates around 10 years ago that the underground church of China was increasing by a Pentecost a day. They were increasing by around 3,000 people a day. God adding to their numbers daily. It is possible. The question is how? How is it possible for God to add to our numbers daily? Especially in a country where the numbers of Christians seems to be decreasing daily. I also had a how is this possible moment several years ago. I used to teach a class at Ozark called Christian Life. I mean, if that, whenever that was one of my very first classes, they're like, you're going to teach a class on the Christian life. It's a freshman level class. I'm like, that's a big class. Teach them how to do the entire Christian life. 
Okay, so, so I thought, all right, we're going to start off by, by me asking them a question. If you don't know totally what you're doing as a prof, you ask them questions, and then it kind of helps. So I started off, and I said, okay, what, what are Christians known for? I mean, if you're going to characterize a Christian, somebody came up to you and said, hey, I, I, you know, if I become a Christian, you know, what am I known for? What do I do? What, do you, what, do you, what are you what are Christians known for? That's what I asked the class. And they started listing things off like uh, Christians pray, and Christians do daily devotions, and Christians go to church, and, and Christians fast. And, and it's a lot of the same things that I was taught growing up in the church. I mean, I, I, I tell people, I was like, listen, I was born in a pew, basically. Not, not literally, but I mean, I've been in church all my life, ever since I was little. And I was taught that what it means to be a good Christian is to pray and do your daily devotions and to do all the things that, that we were listing on the board. And I thought, good, 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 we can build off of this. This is wonderful. And then something happened the next class period. The next class period, I, I wasn't even thinking about what we had done two days earlier. I was just trying to survive that 50 minutes. And so I started off with another question. I said, what was Jesus known for? I mean, if people, you know, they want to talk about what does it mean that, you know, to follow this person, Jesus, what was he known for? What characterizes Jesus? What was he known for? And I start filling up the board, and their, their answers didn't surprise me. Their answers were things like, well, he was known for, for eating with sinners, for healing the poor, for, for preaching to the lost. He was known for hanging out with the least of these. And it didn't surprise me that that's the stuff they were saying, because that is what Jesus is known for. I mean, if you ask a non-Christian, what is Jesus known for? Some of the stuff that they would list, what was once on the board, shouldn't surprise us. But it was as I was writing one of the last things on the board that the Spirit put this question in my mind. Why are the two lists so different? Why are the two lists so different? Why is it whenever we ask, what are Christians known for? That what I write on the board seems categorically different than what Jesus was known for. Isn't that weird? I mean, it gets a little more awkward whenever I ask a non-Christian, what are Christians known for? That happened in a book called Unchristian by David Kinnaman in 2007. Top three answers of what Christians are known for. Anti-homosexual, hypocritical, and judgmental. Does that surprise you? It should at least bother us, though. It should bother us that the lists are so different. And I started asking this question, how is it possible that people that have, in the first six letters of their name, Christian, they share the name with Christ? How is it that we are known for something categorically different than what Jesus was known for? Where's the breakdown? Here, here's what I think the answer is. We don't know who we are. And so we don't know what to do. We don't really know who we are. And so we don't know what to do. Stuart Briscoe once said, the more you tell someone what to do, or excuse me, the more you tell someone who they are, the less you have to tell them what to do. And, and I, do, I do this with my kids all the time. Zion can give a testimony if he, if he needs. Whenever my kids do something and, and I'm disciplining them, what is one of the number one questions I ask you right off the bat? What do I ask you? 
Who are we? That's what I ask. I say, wait, 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 wait. Who are we? And who are we? We're the woods. And who are the woods? Woods are Christians. And this is my whole thing. I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. If that's who we are, then why are you doing this? Why do your actions not match your identity? Because they should be linked. You know what's fascinating is that the message of Christianity should be what is a magnet to our culture. Our culture is obsessed with the question themselves. They just don't know it. We're obsessed with the question that's embedded in our obsession with the letter I. There are I's everywhere right now, aren't there? iPhones, iPods, iPads, iCloud. There are I's everywhere. Our culture is obsessed with the letter I. But here's the irony. Our culture can't answer this question. How do you define the letter I? Who am I? And our culture will hem, haul around, and they'll say things that they do. And it's like, no, 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 no. What you do flows from who you are. What you do does not make you who you are. There's a difference. And I would love to say that it's our culture that struggles with this question. But let's be honest, even in the church, we struggle with this question. In 2002, Rick Warren publishes the book Purpose Driven Life. Ever heard of it? <laughs> yeah, you almost giggle. You're like, who hasn't in the church? It sold millions of copies. Do you remember what was on the front cover, the question that was on the front cover of the book, on the front cover of the videos, on the banners? Do you remember the question? It's okay if you don't, because it's been about 14 years. It was this. What on earth am I here for? And I remember my church that I was preaching at at the time, we did the big purpose-driven life campaign and we launched small groups. It was wonderful. And it was a couple years later I started reflecting on that phenomenon. That it, and it kind of started to boggle my mind. And I began thinking, I began asking this question. I'm going, wait a minute. This book sold millions of copies to Christians who apparently could not answer the question, what on earth am I here for? Isn't that strange that we can sit Sunday after Sunday and listen to sermon after sermon and sing song after song and somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, what on earth are you here for? And you're like, I don't know. I got to go buy a book. I have no idea. How is this possible? I think it's just we don't know who we are. Frankly, I think even the question's the wrong question on the front of the book. It's not what on earth am I here for? It's who am I? Because if you answer the question, who am I? Then you'll know what to do. Because actions follow identity, not the opposite. And so if the lists are categorically different, then there's a breakdown somewhere in our understanding of who we are, or maybe an understanding of who Christ is. I know what some of you are thinking at this point. You're probably like, what in the world does this have to do with Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47? I'm not going to tell you yet. We'll get there. We have two sermons to iron this out. It'll be wonderful. Not there yet. I want to make another observation that maybe will help us understand why we're so confused. A lot of us serve Jesus as our Savior, but we just kind of pay him lip service to him as our Lord. And there is a difference. Don't get me wrong, I believe he is both Savior and Lord. But a lot of what we do in the church, or a lot of what we gravitate towards, and frankly even a lot of our evangelistic tactics, 
emphasize Jesus as a Savior. And it kind of just pays lip service to the fact he's also a Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. He is a Savior. Don't hear me not saying that. I am so incredibly thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ that has rescued me from my sins. I'm so thankful that I can wake up every day knowing that like the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt, passing through the waters of baptism, that I am made free. I'm so thankful for the grace and the love of my Savior, Jesus Christ. However, if you only look to Jesus as your Savior, your Christianity will serve you. Because I mean, if we're honest, like when you're talking about a Savior, it's about everything you get. Right? I mean, you get a get-out-of-hell-free card. You get your forgiveness of your sins. You get a mansion in the sky. And all that is true. But if you only look at Jesus as a Savior and you never look at Him as a Lord, you'll also think things like worship services are things you get to critique. <laughs> That's just amazing to me. I'm going, I, I've actually wondered this question out loud. I'm like, I thought the only person that could critique a worship service was the one being worshipped. I thought they were the only ones that could look at somebody and say, actually, that's not a worthy, a worthy offering. But my goodness, we're under this misconception that when we come into the room because we put money in the coffers, that it should serve us. Those actions are strange whenever you realize what identity it should be attached to. Those actions come whenever Jesus is only a savior and you think that all the Christianity is about is what you get. And here's one of the reasons why we shy away from Jesus' Lord. We shy away from him as our Lord because whenever you start talking about him as your Lord, it's about everything you lose. You lose your rights to your future. You lose your rights to say where your money goes. You lose your rights when you bow your knee to Jesus. You know what James and Jude both begin their books with? And they both were half-brothers of Jesus, by the way. James and Jude both begin their books by saying, we are a doulos of Jesus, which means a slave to him. And it's amazing to me how often Jesus will tell us directly what to do. And then we'll do something different. Or we'll ignore it. It's amazing to me where Jesus will give us as clear as an example of what it is that he was and what it is he desires for us to be, and then our lists will be absolutely opposite. There's something broken. There's something that's a bit off. Maybe I would summarize it in this way. Jesus didn't come just to save you. Now, he did come to save you, but that's not all he came to do. Frankly, he had a bigger target than that. And you know what that target is? And this is where the good news, it's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. The good news is this. He came to transform everything that was broken in the present and in the future. Both. I remember whenever I was baptized, July 12th, 1991. I remember it vividly the smells the sights the temperature of the baptism i'm like will you put a heater in this that would be quite nice 
At the age of nine, I remember being baptized. I remember my confession. I remember looking out at the audience and being overwhelmed. And I remember when my dad put me down in the water and brought me back up. And I remember after the service, still with a wet head, after the service, sitting in the front row, and an elder came up to me, and he shook my hand, and he said, congratulations, son. I said, thank you. And I said, can I ask you a question? He goes, absolutely, what is it? I said, now what? He said, now you're saved. And nothing about me really changed. I remember my first full-time ministry, we've been working on this guy for a long time, sharing the gospel of Jesus, working with him, teaching him, praying with him. And one Sunday, he finally gave his life to Jesus, was buried in baptism and raised to a new life. And then that afternoon, that evening, he beat his wife almost halfway to death. Nothing about him changed. I was talking to my non-Christian uncle. This was a couple years ago, and I finally just said, all right, Chuck, I'm just going to shoot you straight. I said, why aren't you a Christian? Why don't you go to church anymore, man? He's like, you grew up in the church. You know what's true. And I thought he was going to say, well, it's because Christians are too hypocritical. I had an answer for that. I was like, yeah, we're sinners. (laughs) Like, there's no other way to be a Christian outside of being somebody that acknowledges that what I do is not what I want to do and it's not what I will eventually be doing. We're sinners. That's not what he said, though. (laughs) I was ready if he was going to say judgmental. I was going to say, yeah, I know some Christians can be just dense. (laughs) But Jesus isn't. He says, come as you are. But he didn't say that. That was the problem. He didn't say that either. This is what he said. He said, Shane, here's my problem. He said, whenever I go to churches, they seem to only want to talk about the pie in the sky by and by. He goes, my problem is, I live on earth right here, right now. What do you have to do for me today? And I was like, whoa. You're actually kind of right. Because my goodness, it is true that Jesus is our Savior, but you do understand whenever he's a Lord, it should impact the present. We should look different. We should be different. We should have a list that looks a lot like his. There's a difference between making a decision and becoming a disciple. There's a difference between making a decision and becoming a disciple. And the good news of the gospel is this. You don't have to be the same tomorrow that you are today. You know, there's something innate in all of us that we all, all of us, long to be someone different. All of us do. Maybe it's just a better version of yourself, but all of us long to be someone different. I mean, Hollywood makes billions of dollars off this every year. Because we go into a movie theater, and for two, two and a half hours, we can be in a different place at a different time, be a different person. It got me thinking about this as uh, whenever whenever I had kids. I mean, how often my kids play some make-believe something. You know, it's like my daughter. If I'm going to play with my daughter a couple of years ago, she's almost 10 and kind of growing out of this, which makes my heart break, but that's okay. That's my issue. We'll deal with that later. 
whenever I used to play with my daughter, though, and I would sit down with her, I wasn't sitting down with Paigey. No, 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 no. I was sitting down with whatever princess she was for the day. And even though there was air in my cup, we were drinking tea. And I wasn't dad. I was always Captain Hook. I could never understand why I was always the bad guy. I'm asked, I'm like, why am I always the bad guy? And there's something about it being a child. All of us did that. When I was a child, I wanted to be Superman. And oh, I thought I could do it. Man, I would stare in front of a mirror and I'd have my sleeves up and I'd have my I love you sign. I'm like, come on, baby. Come on, baby. And I thought I would shoot webs out my arms. I thought I could. If I just tried hard enough. But you know what you don't find kids doing? You never find kids going, hey, I want to play a game, but I'm me. I don't care who you are, but I'm going to be Shane. That's who I am. No. What are kids constantly doing? You know, I'm a cop or I'm a fireman or I'm a, you're always someone different. And here's the reality. We never outgrow that. We never outgrow that. Whether I'm talking about the homeless person on the side of the road that we ignore. Or the Wall Street person that a lot of people envy. Or even each of you sitting in the pew. We never outgrow this desire that we want to be someone different. And we come to this book of Acts. And we see this outpouring of the Spirit. And here's the beautiful thing about the Spirit. The Spirit's entire job throughout Scripture is to make things new. I mean, think about all the places you see the Spirit. First time we see Him in Genesis chapter 1, where is He? He's hovering over the waters, is He not? He's kind of agitated. He's like, oh, something's about to be created. And He's, he's there. We see the Spirit show up in all of these moments of creation. Whenever Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water, the Spirit's there. He's like, a ministry's about to be launched. Something's new is about to be created. I've got to be here. And here in Acts chapter 2, leading into our text, what do we see? What has Kevin been preaching on the last three or four weeks? This amazing moment where the Spirit comes to create a church. And as the chapter builds, you can hear the intensity in the text beginning to build. I mean, they've been waiting for 10 days after Jesus left, after he ascended into the heavens. Waiting 10 days, praying fervently that God would come, and finally, he does. And the Spirit is poured out on them, and they are speaking in these tongues, and everybody can hear them in their own native language. And people are going, they're like, what is happening and some other crazy people in verse 13 are like, oh, they're drunk. Like, drunk? People don't speak better when they're drunk. They speak worse. And Peter gets up, he's like, whoa, 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 that's not what's happening. He says, what's happening is what Joel told us would happen. The Spirit is being poured out and something new is being created. And he looks at him and he says, even for you people, you know the ones that crucified the king. Man, there is a powerful moment in verse 37. After he says, Jesus, the king whom you crucified, where they ask this question, brothers, what shall we do? In the Greek, this is what it literally is saying. Is there any hope for us? We killed him. We killed the king. Is there any hope for us? 
you can almost hear them ask this question. Can I be someone different? And the beautiful grace-laden passage of verse 38 is, yes. Because in baptism, what are you doing? You're dying and coming back to life. You're dying, you're transforming. That's why I always tell I'm like, my, my students, I'm like, listen, the message of Jesus Christ is definitely come as you are. But the message is also this, but you don't get to stay as you are. And that's the good news. It's one of the things that Satan's been really shrewd recently in our society doing. He's been basically convincing a world there's no hope for transformation. He's literally convinced the world, listen, what I need to do is just embrace who I am. I was just born this way. This is, there's no hope for change. I cannot be different. It's just who I am, and that's it. The problem is, a lot of the Christians in the churches exemplify that. You get baptized, and you're arrogant. You come out, and you're arrogant. It's just baptized in your language. You're baptized as a materialist, and you come out, and we're still materialists. We baptized and we're adulterers and we come out and we're still committing adultery. What is happening in the church? There's an entire world that is longing to be able to be someone different. And it's the reason why as this message spreads that you cannot change, that you are who you are, that you just have to follow your heart, be true to yourself. Listen, I know my heart. I stare at it every day. And if I'm true to it, it's going to destroy me and everyone around me. I need to be someone different. I need to be someone different. And the good news of the gospel is this. Through the resurrection and through the blood of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be someone different. That's the whole point. How is it possible... For this verse to actually be true today. And the Lord added to their number daily. Those who were being saved. Here's the answer. It's possible whenever the two lists. Become one. Whenever we start doing. The things that Jesus was doing. That's how the book of Acts begins by the way. It's not as, as, as if after the Gospels, it's like, all right, let's move on to something else. Let's talk about the church. No, 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 no. Luke begins the book with this verse. In my former v- book, Theophilus, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The book of Luke ends with Jesus ascending into heaven. He goes, that's not the end of the story. No, I'm going to talk to you about all that Jesus began to do. And will continue to do through the outpouring of a spirit and through the creation of what we call the body of Christ. That's a fascinating name to call ourselves. Church. The church is the body of Christ. Let, let, let's not just allow that to be a metaphor that, that loses its impact. Or what I call become a name tag that you wear but it really has no mission attached to it. If you are the body of Christ if you are the hands and feet of Jesus, then your list should look like his. 
When Paul calls us the body of Christ, that is a very high calling. That is a powerful challenge. He says, what Jesus did, you do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus gave up everything. Yep. Yep, he did. As a matter of fact, if I'm going to summarize this entire sermon with a verse, it would be 1 John 2.6. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. In other words, who you are should determine what you're doing. And if you claim to be a Christian, a Christian, then you should look a lot like Jesus. And when you do, guess what happens? People get healed. Oh, yes, they do in the future, but they get healed even today. Whenever you function and look like Jesus, where you go changes. What you do changes. What you claim for yourself is different. Because he didn't even consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he even gave up that becoming flesh. And then he becomes even obedient. Even obedient to death on a cross. And remember how in Mark 8, Jesus tells us, if anyone wants to come follow me, what do they have to do? What do they have to do? They have to carry a cross. Or another way of saying it is, they have to look like me. To be transformed into his likeness. To be transformed in the present in the same way he's promised that he'll transform us in the future. The problem is this. I'm not sure that we know who we are because I'm not sure we understand what he did. He came to save us and to resurrect us when we die. But he also thought he was coming to give us life and life to the full today. How is this possible that the list can be so different? How is it possible for this church to become one that God is adding people to their number daily? It may have something to do with verses 43 through 46. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were united together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts united. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. We understand this is the climax of the chapter, right? That this is Luke's major punch at the end. The Spirit's been poured. Peter has preached. People have responded. And the church explodes. The only way that this is possible is if we take the example and the ministry of Jesus seriously as not just what saves us, but as what we are to become. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, May, Father, we fall in love more and more deeply with you. Father God, may we be more and more humbled by your patience. 
Holy Spirit. May we be more consumed by your transforming power so that, Father, not only our lives can be different, but this entire community can be transformed for your glory. In your name, Lord, we pray all these things. Amen.